1: Emily Yoon's debut collection, A Cruelty Special to Our Species, has already earned glowing praise. Amy Tan calls it an engaging, urgent book by a writer we must listen to. Chang Lee calls it a lovely, moving, and ultimately devastating book. Emily Jung Min Yoon uh, is the author of A Cruelty Special to Our Species and Ordinary Misfortunes, winner of the Sunken Garden Chapbook Prize. Her poems and translations have appeared in The New Yorker, New York Times, Magazine, Poetry, and elsewhere. She has received awards and fellowships from the Poetry Foundation, Plowshares, Emerging Writers' Contest, NYU, among others. She is the poetry editor for The Margins, the literary magazine of the Asian American Writers' Workshop, and a Ph.D. student in uh, Korean Literature at the University of Chicago. Muriel Leung Young is the author of *Bone Confetti*, winner of the 2015 Nomi Press Book Award. A Pushcart Prize-nominated writer, her work can be found in *Gulf Coast*, *Drunken Boat*, *The Collagist*, Fairy Tale Review*, and others. She's a recipient of the fellowships. She's a recipient of fellowships to Kundiman, VONA Voices Workshop, and Community of Writers. She's the poetry co-editor of Apogee Journal. She, currently, she is a Dornsife Fellow of Creative Writing and Literature at University of Southern California. Morgan Parker is the author of There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce, Other People's Comfort Keeps Me Up At Night, and the forthcoming poetry collection, Magical Negro. That's this Tuesday, I believe? Yeah, it comes
2: out Tuesday. Cool. <laughs> uh,
1: we're excited. You guys, uh, you guys
2: have
1: a what's that? You guys have it. No? Not, we can't sell it until no, no, Tuesday. But yeah. I just make sure it oh, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Definitely. Um, <laughs> it's not a question. Um, her debut young adult novel, Who Put This Song On, is forthcoming in late 2019, and her debut book of nonfiction will be released in 2020. Her poetry and essays have appeared in Tin House, The Paris Review, The Breakbeat Poets. New American Poetry in the Age of Hip Hop, Best American Poetry 2016, The New York Times, and The Nation. She lives in Los Angeles. We're incredibly fortunate to have these three wildly talented poets with us this evening. Please join me, please join me in welcoming Emily Jung Min Yoon, Muriel Leung, and Morgan Parker.
0: I'm happy to start us off tonight. Um, my name is Muriel, and I've known Emily for many years, and I've known her work for many years. So it is um, to say that these book of poems are long awaited is really an understatement. So it is a really great honor to be here to celebrate her work. And of course, like to be alongside Morgan Parker doing anything is <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I mean, that too. (laughs) That's not exclusive. (laughs) Um, So, I'm going to read a couple of poems. I'll write a new poem, and then I will also um, read a couple of poems from Bone Confetti, my book. And then I'll close with a short essay um, that I'll talk about in just a little bit. The fathers swarm to meet the boats. Every night I dream of fathers, their bodies ferried away into the far corner between sleep and waking. Always there is a dock, the possibility of splinter. File by file, tall ligaments of ash light. The fathers move across the wooden slats, careening into water. The bed is a blanket of hollow stars upon which the dead stalk on. Eyes shut. The boats come out with bright moon oars. Waiting, the father's mouths hang a mile apart. My father in his galaxy suit. Chin heavy with whiskers, he glistens, the skin awash in a silver sheen, cheeks a puckered, sinking, we do not touch. My arms cross over my chest, twin scepters of an afterlife crowning. When the dead shimmy, coins drop from every pocket of their skeletal harp. The land brims with the loudness of copper slapping against bone string, and the boats sway. Reckoned, the fathers descend into the vessels, each one a shade drifting towards an eternity of unknowns. My own, a shrinking figure who does not turn, will not move. Then the room fills with daylight's happy shards. In the slow hours of my waking life, my mouth full of metal proceeds with a viscous chew. To be alive, touching my living bone, is a small fee to pay, never quite enough. When the boats return, empty as a suddenly upturned palm, a new procession comes. Fathers of the nightly ritual and spool, I will never learn. There goes my father again with his languid certainty. While I flounder, he bears his torso, a bright red cancer wound at his center, aimed at the horizon every night like a brand new flag. The Forgetting Hole. Forgetting in the middle of forgetting as in the tongue is clipped and trotted off. I forget where I'm going all the time. On the lamb or on the map while a whole city flocks to sleep. I forget the kettle on the stove. Boiling the city shakes its keys and I forget again the noise that pumps our lungs full of forgetting cancer. In the smoke that bruises charge of forgetful things, I forget how forgetting is easy. Its absence forgetting every day. Forgets needle in a sober dish, like forgetting to inject thoughts with adjectives. Forgets static mayhem across the tooth street. A city forgets in a name of blood and harp. What flails me and what floods me with joy. Or beginnings forgetting those as well. I lap around, but I cannot part from your shoulder cave. To forget you, I must punch holes in every almanac. You must forget me too. All the selfish hungers meant only to fill, to forget loneliness, trying to forget itself down the forgetting hole. I pass the many thrills of forgotten objects. When a storms, your whole body thunders. I am scared of loud noises, of losing and leaving. When people leave me, I will have forgotten you. I apologize for said I was never really good at transitional speech, like between poems. I'm just going to like read through them, and then if you have questions, you can ask in the end. This is hologram theory. Some things I am learning through the process of light, and how my hand passes through the body screen of you, sitting there with your ham leg and hyperclear spacesuit. I love you, and I think sometimes you are the left half of my terrible beached heart. Its anvil worth is pleading with the dull whir of your projection. In many ways, this feels more real. You insist on the heavy dose of the day-to-day remote control dive forward. With this, I can make you say all the nice things like, I belong to your pretty little liver, or if you are on fire, I will burn with you too. When I want to hold your hand, I just hold it out towards the peachy static of your fingertips. You blink to assure me of the viability of our future in flicker light revisions. If I can no longer recall the spiny sensation of you against my thighs, then I will have to work harder and think less of the dead, of you jarred up in crystalline bathwater while your hologram bright face hovers across the dinner table. Let's not talk about that. Today, you are taking on the origin of the color blue. And who decided on name blue anyway? It is so provincial. They say we are a vat of tingly particles moving aimlessly in the caution of our own waste. though sometimes we rest our fingers on the ghost of a lung that huffs the other body's good, hard air. Touch, a recovery project. Touch acknowledges cavity in chest center. Touch should be in theory essentially good for knowing salt and gravity. Touch is akin to knowing flesh and knowing fleshes. I know it when the follicle stings and my heart has turned away of glass. I know that touch is what bludgeons. I know what shuts itself in the mouth and threatens to rust through the gulp down. I know what sows itself to flesh in such a way that flesh no longer recognizes flesh. I know what flesh must do to to preserve the sanctity of touch so that to be touched means to be touched and only just that. Touch to finger the splitting harp. Touch to know the wreck that brews within me and phantoms of my nodding. Touch made of red sharps, feral and bleak Touch me in the flint of a blank corridor when the world heaves into many bends. Let it funnel into fever. And lastly, um, I want to read a very short essay. Um, it's a short essay about, I guess, what are the things? Heartbreak, queerness, won car water, And one other thing, probably, (laughs) that I'll figure out. Thank you so much for having me. This is a Stranger. Perhaps when they said it, they meant it as a resolution to all things with us that seemed to go on without end. After five years and the assured quality of my body's indentation on their mother's couch, they told me that I performed so excellently as a stranger in love. I hung on their words for many years after, thinking of my body as a theater. The goal was this, to commit oneself to an act so faithfully that feeling would adorn the body shell and eventually wear its way into the body. Of this devotion, director Wong Kar Wai was a master. It was said that in the making of Happy Together, Wong was intent on having his actors, Tony Leung and Leslie Chung, who portrayed two expatriate lovers, execute a closeness that required repeated takes. As two lovers in a new city where loneliness sits on every corner, it is not enough to love, but to really love with the fastidiousness of two bodies enclosing upon one another. Wong kept insisting that the two actors practiced a tango, a dance that weaves through the film as both the revival and turmoil of their on-again, off-again relationship. Two men pressed together and never quite close enough, Wong critiqued, and he would have them start over and over again. What does it mean to want, Wong seemed to be asking, in the sense that wanting as a part of queer love is a feral thing that we must learn through perpetual exercise of belief. It was not that the intimacy of this dance rehearsed in behind the scenes footage was any less convincing than the final scenes themselves, but that the process of getting there mattered too. I watched two men on screen hold each other in a blue room and thought their bodies moved like a single boat across languid water, each one keeping the other afloat. Perhaps such acts of grace are reserved only for the mediated experiences of film, though I recall that once I would fall asleep next to someone I loved to the sound of sirens. We slept in a room that was not a room but a small space partitioned off. Their mother's snores fell on top of us from the other side we were always reminded that we were being watched either by sight or sound. Sometimes I would bury my head into them, followed by hands and then feet in an imperfect act of submersion. Why, they would bemoan jokingly, and I would tell a scientific lie about how bodies in sleep transmogrified into gelatin, a substance that is a close cousin to bone glue, and it is exactly as it sounds. <laughs> What would happen if this were true? Would they have stayed? I woke up one day in a different city. There, the trees hung their heads, weighted with a history of loss. When it rained, a division between sky and ground would become a slate gray blur. Yet people were rarely afraid. During a storm, I ran into the flooded road and fell down a five-foot hole filled with water after confusing it for ground. On a nearby porch, men chain-smoked and did not help. I flailed for several seconds before pulling myself out, bemused by the cartoonish quality of this accident. I recount the story often, much to the horror of my listeners, and it is always in response to their mouth agape that I assure them that in that moment, I believed myself to be with the water, and please do not worry, I was not alone. The night arrives, and I will myself into a new belief. It is possible, it seems, to achieve such affinity for a bodily practice that the act becomes a part of everyday life. I hug the interior of my body house that has known so many names. I thank its weariness for its daily work, for doing a writer's work, which is always a labor in feeling. To that end, I wake up sometimes, not crying, but feeling the water well up in the cavities of my body. I dream of vehicles that propel forward without me, and in my nightmares, I am always still in the eye of every catastrophe. Even now, when asked about the cruelest word, I cannot even say it aloud, but would point to my chest as if it means something, the gesture as an approximation of what was. Thank you so much.
3: I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Um, okay. I just noticed that this is a jumpsuit. Yeah. Girl, get the fuck out. Of here. It's amazing. Um, I just got this contributor copy of a poem I wrote. Um, the only new poem I've written since I wrote my latest book. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna start by reading that, and then I'll read a couple and then I'll get the fuck away so we can all hear it. Emily. No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Search for the new land. The future is not a gender. Doesn't even have a body. And then there's white women making T-shirts and selling them for $80 or whatever. Whatever they do. The sun doesn't hate anyone and neither do I. All, I. all I listen to is Lee Morgan's trumpet for long stretches of afternoons and nights in the desert. I decide on the delusion where I live, genderless and out of sight. This is how I choose to spend what I have. I'm an American, so I only hear what I want to. This is our right to protect ourselves In times of extreme stress, in times of great fear, we do what we have to do to survive. Our task is to make it out alive. This one instruction for having a body, the punishment for it. I see the way birds look at me, endangered. The future is only earned or inherited. It writes itself. Everything wrong with the picture is the true meaning of the picture. The future is relative. Of course, I am conditional. I am writing this from the deep end. There are some privileges to being feared, fearing the consequences of yourself, how I came all this way and all these centuries, carrying this extreme stress and pervading American fear. The taxi driver deposited my many suitcases into the busy street and drove off. I don't have enough hands. My evolution has not equipped me for this climate. Lifting a box of books into the overhead compartment, I wished for a device to make my face a white girl in times like these, helpless with a body. No full flight would watch a white girl struggle this way, her life flashing before her under the weight of her own books. I can't even imagine it, the dissonance of chords and notes, the hilarious idea of infinity. The last time I considered suicide, on the edge of a curb leaning into the yellow taxis of the meatpacking, which in retrospect would have been a terrible place to die, in front of all those white women (laughs) hobbling in their high heels over the cobblestone, doing that shampoo commercial move bathed in the light of themselves. I considered all I've learned about sacrifice and duty. I went home in an American SUV ashamed of something. That last time I teased death, I couldn't listen to any music for weeks, not one note of song. When I think about the story of Abraham tying up his son for slaughter, the offering on an altar at the edge of a mountaintop, the instruction to do what he had to do, as it is written. I identify most with the ram, the alternative asymmetrical sacrifice. I see the way birds look at me. It writes itself. We used to sing that song, Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them, and so are you, praising the Lord and fearing the wind in our palm trees. The future is this, ah, looking up at the sky in California, blue and green. I am always at the edge of the end of the world. In the desert, if a ram appears, I may escape death. $80 for a certain and secure future. Miles Davis's trumpet on blue and green, a future where I no longer need to be grateful. Baldwin wrote, Our crown has already been bought and paid for. What's important in these times of war and faith is the consideration, the lean into traffic, the acts raised dutifully. You are always almost gone. It is written so that we may remember. Documentation of the past makes the future possible. I am learning all I can from this day so I can teach it to who I will be tomorrow. I've written, I am a different person every minute, and everybody knows I don't believe in time anyway. (sighs) I did not inherit it. I always misremember the title, Search for the New Land, the Lee Morgan album and the book by Julius Lester. I misremember the the, I think, a new land, a new land. All I can hear is go, wherever, anywhere but here. In Julius Lester's search for the new land, it is written, being, to be. In America, one was taught to do. My task is to wander until I find a safe place to continue being. I think effort and sacrifice and faith, fingers crossed. I think it is my responsibility to find the ram to slaughter in my place. If we hate the past more than we love the future, Julius Lester wrote, we will succeed in bringing the past into the future. Documentation of the past makes all futures possible, makes the land new, the the. It is written. The difference between surviving and being. The future is. Take it. The future is out of body, out of sight, certain as the the. Looking up at the sky in California, the trumpet again and again, wind, blue, one holy bird, and everything possible and promised, the new land already waiting for me, even me. Um, here's some more shit about death. <laughs> Sorry, well, I don't. I couldn't tell, oh, oh my God, hi. I'm so glad, I really thought that was like Wow. I'm leaving, but now I see you. Um, Hi. (laughs) I just, like, expect hecklers all the time. Um, My hecklers aren't even, like, funny. It's a bummer. I would be into it. Mm, Okay, I'm just going to read a couple from here. I'm reading Nancy Myers. Nancy Myers and my dream of whiteness. You guys know. I don't know. Sometimes people are like, "Who's that?" The, it's the lady who directs all the movies with the fancy kitchens and all the white people. You guys know, right? You'll you know. It's it's in the American psyche. Nancy Myers and my dream of whiteness. I can't be sorry enough. I have learned everything is urgent, road closings, animal lungs. I am working hard to be as many people as possible before I can't. I know my long, dark movie is fistfuls of gravel in a brown bottle. My storyboards fill me with calculated sorrow, a full plate and burnt sage, dollar signs, breaking news, I work two and three jobs. I am honorable and brave. The ensemble cast whittles down. Maybe I am a slave. I make ends meet. I don't get kissed. Behold my wide smile. Octavia Spencer cooks in a small apartment. She serves joyfully and doesn't eat. She wipes her palm on her apron forehead. Angela Bassett is sick and tired of being Denzel Washington reminds us how often we are afraid. We get arrested. Someone narrates. What you look like is sheer fabrics and ivory shells. Alec Baldwin is smoking a joint in the bathroom of a CEO's birthday party. Steve Martin tastes the goat cheese and considers nothing. (laughs) You never get arrested. There is no question that God waits at the end of your staircase, curling softly like wood-finished ribbon. Anne Hathaway hires a decorator. Diane Keaton makes midnight pancakes, tops them with lavender ice cream. You guys saw that fucking movie, right? That's like lifted. Okay, whatever. (laughs) What is beautiful does not need to be called beautiful. No one talks about money. In our house, the sky is upside down. None of us find unlikely love. I do not revel in my luxury. I would rather serve than eat. If it seems like I desire you, you're right. I want my whole mouth around your safety. I want to be buried side by side. I just like read the audiobook for this today. Um, so I'm just like this is an exhausting book, um, and you know bless what was his name Jonathan or Daniel or something, the white guy in the uh, in the booth who had to hear all of it out of just out of any context at all like just this dude, um, yeah I was like sorry. <laughs> I was like, I just need to repeat, I feel like I didn't get the word, you know, the nigger right, like I just need to go back. (laughs) He's like, okay. (laughs) Um, Okay, and Cold Sunset. How I feel about you is smoking a cigarette in the rain. I think about walking into traffic and suddenly your dick. I think about a yellow line and then a road and then an animal and nothing rises up, and horror is a verb. I want to forgive myself for overindulging. Food delivery men see me without a bra more than anyone else. (laughs) My body is an argument I did not start. In a way, I am not aware who made me. I bow down to a deep plea. When strangers call my name, I feel like a white girl, skin in reverse, and a quiet pussy. <laughs> <laughs> nothing helps me not think about universes. I'm funny because I know nothing matters. Thanks. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs>
4: Hello. Um, So I met both Muriel and Morgan in New York, and they had published books before me, and really their works made me feel possible in the literary world. So I'm really grateful that these generous and gorgeous souls are with me today um, on the night of my first L.A. reading. (laughs) Yes. Um, and obviously, thank you to Skylight for having me. And um, I also had to do an audiobook for this, and um, the studio people were like, oh, what would you like to drink? And I, I, I really wanted to be like glass of wine, but, but I didn't want them to judge me, so I said, oh, water is okay. <laughs> and they gave me apple juice, which is like <laughs> kind of in the middle, uh, I guess. Um, all right, so I'm going to read from my book, um, A Cruelty Special to Our Species. I'm gonna be reading from this Harry Potter version <laughs> of my book, the editor's <laughs> the editors' uh, collection, uh, whatever. Um, and I'm going to start with this poem that actually Morgan picked for the offing when you were editor there. So <laughs> oh, um, before I read the poem, Does everyone know what the comfort woman means? Um, Some of you know, and it's a euphemistic term for the sex slaves of the Japanese empire. That's all you need to know, okay. An ordinary misfortune. Mine is the jam-packed train, the two-week cocktail, the statement by an American man at the bar Your life in Korea would've been a whole lot different without the U.S. Meaning, be thankful. This question by a Canadian girl, a friend, why don't you guys just get along? The guys, Japan and Korea. Meaning, move on. How do I answer that? Move on, move on, girls on the train. Destination, comfort stations. Things a soldier can do. Mount you before another soldier is done. Say, drink the soup made of human blood. Say, the Korean race should be erased from this earth. Tops down, bottoms up. Things erased, your name, your child, your history, your new name, Fumiko, Hanako, Yoshiko. Name of the condom, charge number one. Name of the needle, compound 606. Salverson means an arsenic to save. Ratio 29 one twenty nine 29 soldiers per girl. Actual count, lost, lost all. Shot, shot, shot. Everybody, give thanks. I know you don't have trains here in LA, but (laughs) no, I'm just kidding. I'm from Chicago. Um, I'm not from Chicago, but I live in Chicago now, and I'm really happy to be here. Um, I narrowly escaped the polar vortex Exciting city, exciting weather. <laughs> um, so I really envy all of you for this, this blessed weather. Um, the next poem I'm going to read is a New York poem. It's called Hello Miss Pretty Bitch. <laughs> Hello Miss Pretty Bitch, the street drummer calls out in Korean, no doubt thinking it a compliment A pleasant surprise, cinched with red ribbons, for Christmas, the day select theaters will gift us with The Interview, a comedy in which two American journalists ignite Kim Jong-un's face. Freedom has prevailed, the film star Seth Rogen says about the release. The same was thought at the time of Korea's release from the Japanese empire, though then the Korean War began and compared to war, what's so bad about a movie?" Anyway, even war can be funny, and now a drummer in New York says, you got a smile that could light up the whole town, though I'm not smiling thinking about villages and cities of what became North Korea set on fire, sending puddles of twilight into sunless skies as if flames could stab, but as freedom of speech prevails, freedom always prevails, which is why we get to see two Americans incinerate a Korean face on Christmas, hold our popcorn and chocolate bars, and laugh as a dictator explodes in tune to a pop song laugh as American soldiers would laugh at Korean children chanting, hello, hello, give me chocolate with wartime hunger, laugh as they choose which face to light up. I know you have trains in LA, I was just kidding. But everyone looks so serious when I said it. It's like, uh uh-oh, cut that out from the podcast. I'm going to read a section from my long poem called Testimonies, and each section is a, is a, a testimony of a former comfort woman. Okay, Testimony by Kim Jim. An automobile drove up the road, something I had never seen before. The driver let me climb up and the truck rolled on, then kept on going and going and I begged them to take me back, but I was thrown into a cargo train, a cargo ship, power bin, a comfort station where three truckloads of soldiers arrived. One by one, they raped all night long with filthy, wordless bodies my child's body. They impregnated girls and still forced sex. When a child was born, a blue uniformed woman put the body in a sack and carried it away. Soldiers used the sack. Taku, reused condoms. Girls got sick. When a girl got too sick, a guard wrapped her body in a blanket and carried her away. Such was our life. Look at my fingers. When I ran away, the police smashed my hands, weaving a stiff pen between my fingers like this. Another year passed like this. In June 1945, when the camp seemed deserted, I escaped and ran all night. In a month, I reached Korean shores. In Bin, I saw at a stream a hand of a sick girl who had been buried alive. In my dreams, she is still reaching toward wider waters. My hands with her crooked fingers cannot help her. So I believe in Korea, in South Korea, there are 24 former comfort women alive, um, at least out of the people who have registered. And... um, All of them are in their 90s, and they are still waiting for reparations and continued apologies to come from Japan, the Japanese government. Um, I'm going to read three more poems from this book, and and I'm going to end with a poem that is not in the book. I'm going to read this poem that Muriel selected for the Apogee. They have
2: such good
4: Yeah, they're good poets, good editors, (laughs) good human beings, good everything. This poem is called On the Day of the Gyeongju Earthquake, September 12, 2016. All I want to think about is love and gratitude on the escalator in Busan Station, having having put you on the train back to Seoul. Avoiding the eyes of the doomsayer on the staircase next to my descending steps as he screams death upon those who don't accept God. The end is coming, so come to church. Or the earth will split open to swallow you and you won't be saved. He spits a different miracle on each face. God slits the sea down, the woman behind me. Flame bursts into the world and water fills it, then overflows. It is not that I don't fear water and fire, it is not that I don't believe in God. We already kill and die with water and fire. An ocean away, the police will shoot Terence Crutcher and Keith Lamont Scott, and it will not be the end. And here, Namgi will die from a water cannon, and none of this was for not believing in the right power, which is God. The doomsayer says we must surrender, and he is sure of this. Across the station, windows of love motels light up, then dim as lovers enter the room, empty for, empty into each other. The end of summer is coming. I have now walked far away from the man. It is not that I don't believe in God. For once, all I want is to think about love and gratitude, thank God for all our lives. When the earth begins to tremble, I look back to the station already emptied of your train. No one will die from this, not today, not today, but people embrace, touch each other by the wrist, by instinct. The man stands alone, like me, his arms lifted, perhaps in surrender, perhaps in gratitude. One more God poem. (laughs) Where is it? Um... Say grace. In my country, our shamans were women and our gods multiple until white people brought an ecstasy of rosaries, and our cities today glow with crosses like graveyards. As a child in Sunday school, I was told I'd go to hell if I didn't believe in God. Our teacher was a woman whose daughters wanted to be nuns, and I asked, What about babies and what about Buddha? And she said, They're in hell too. And so I memorized prayers and recited them in front of women I did not believe in. Deliver us from evil, O sweet Virgin Mary, amen, O sweet, O sweet. In this country, which calls itself Christian, what is sweeter than hearing, have mercy on us from those who serve different gods. O clement, O loving, O God, O God, amidst ruins, amidst waters, fleeing, fleeing. Deliver us from evil, O oh, sweet, O oh, sweet. In this country, point at the moon, at the stars, point at the way the lake lies with a handful of feathers, and they will look at the feathers and kill you for it. If a word for religion they don't believe in is magic, so be it. Let us have magic. Let us have our own mothers and scarves, our spirits, our shamans, and our sacred books. Let us keep our stars to ourselves, and we shall pray to no one. Let us eat what makes us holy. Okay, last poem from this book. It's called Bell Theory. Um, This poem actually came from a prompt. Someone gave me the title of the poem, My Friend Keen. And it was the first time I had the title of the poem before I wrote the poem and suddenly, I guess it was just the right one because this whole poem suddenly came out in like two minutes, so, all right, it's called Bell Theory. When I was laughed at for my clumsy English, I touched my throat. Which said year, when my ear said year, and year after year I pronounced the new thing wrong and other throats laughed. Elevator. Library. Vibrating bells in their mouths. How to say Azalea. How to say Forsythia. Say instead golden bells. Say I'm in ESL. In French class, a boy whose last name is Kring called me Bell called me by my Korean name pronouncing it wrong called it loudly, called attention to my alien I touched the globe moving in my throat, a hemisphere sinking called me across the field lined with golden bells I wanted to run and be loved at the same time by Kring, as in ring of people where are you going? we're laughing with you the bell in our throat that rings with laughter is called uvula from uva, grape a theory special to our species, this great bell has to do with speech, which separates us from animals. Kring looked at me and said, just curious, do you eat dogs? And I wanted to end my small life, be reborn a golden retriever of North America, lie on a field lined with golden bells, loved. Today, in a country where dogs are more cherished than a foreign child, an Oregon Senate candidate says no to refugees, says years ago, Vietnamese refugees ate dogs, harvested other people's pets. Harvest, as in harvest grapes. Harvest, as in harvest a field of golden rice. As do people from rice countries, as in people eat dog worlds. Years ago, 1923, Japan, the phrase is used to set apart Koreans. Say 15 yen, 50 sen. The colonized who used the chaos of the Kanto earthquake to poison waters set fire. A cruelty special to our species. A cruelty special to our species. How to say Jugo, how to say "gojit, how Jugo sounds like die in Korean, how gujit sounds like lie, lie. Lie, library, azalea, library. I'm going to the library I lied years ago on a field lined with forsythia. Some depressing poems for Friday night. <laughs> um, I'm going to end with a new-ish poem that's not in my book. Thanks again for coming. Um, we're going to transition to like a 15-minute Q&A slash conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, also Morgan's new book Magical Negro is coming out on Tuesday and the launch party is tomorrow at the Ace Hotel so you should definitely all go and celebrate um, if you don't go I guess have a glass of champagne in your room and <laughs> toast Morgan from far away and buy the book okay. <laughs> the last poem is called Decency when a man threw his fist into a wall next to my eye, I said that was love, that love was rage. I was in the habit of loving anyone who laid a cold hand on my face and said he would pray for me or anyone who prays. I thought apology was love and so I loved to hear a man say sorry. I loved to forgive because it meant I was a goddess. I forgave because he couldn't possibly forgive himself. There's a demon inside me, he said. Who cares if it's a demon when it is mine and I am greedy for it? No, and I don't care, do you hear me, I would say, and greed seemed to river through my body. Even years later, I could not speak of men and their violence because I wanted to believe, yes, in such a thing as decency, in men I loved, that love was decent. All the men who wanted me beautiful, wanted me thin, wanted me with short hair, wanted me less smart, wanted me, wanted me not, wanted me with pink cheeks, wanted the best for me, wanted me in ruffled skirts, wanted me naked, wanted me dead. All the men who wanted me, men who wanted, men who are gone and not gone enough. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> comments, compliments. That was really <laughs> wonderful. And thank you so much
3: for reading that poem. I love that poem. The last poem? I mean, that was my thing Nice.
1: Can you just def-
3: say what your Comfort, comfort women. Oh, for, it's uh, for me.
4: Um, well, I started writing about the comfort women because when I was at NYU doing my MFA program, where Morgan actually went too, um, I, I was uh, talking to my colleagues who are also poets of color and thinking about how we can write about our history um, with sensitivity, but also in a way that is... Um, accessible to everyone else because we wanted the awareness to be raised. And I found myself keep going back to the history of the comfort women. And it's not because I have um, anyone who was a comfort woman in my family, but it is a very urgent issue in Korea. And I want to think of it as something that didn't, I want to think of it as something um, that happened in the past, but also it is still very, immediate in our present lives. It is still an uh, unresolved issue. And, you know, there are still 24 women alive who are waiting to get reparations from the Japanese government. So I found myself keep going back to that history and their narratives um, and how they were also contributing to um, the discourse of feminist literature in a way in 1990s Korea. Um, that's, 1991 is when the first former comfort woman came, uh, came forth with her story. And this, I think that contributed to our rethinking of literature as something that is just written as text and that is um, legitimized by male critics, right? So it's something that I think about a lot still even though I don't have like, a personal connection to anyone who was, who was subjected to that trauma. Thank
0: you. There's a question there's a hand
4: right here. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. I love using repetition <laughs> in poetry. It's like one of the things in my trick bag. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. what are your tricks when you,
3: you when you're like kind of stung? I mean, you're right, like rhythm is everything. Right. Right. So I don't know, you use it so well and mm. I think it's something that pushes the urgency of a poem for sure and also has this like spell casting
2: Mm. and I feel
3: that with your poems and even you know the one that I published it's you guys couldn't see it but it's like very compressed and there's this kind of like breathlessness Mm
0: -hmm. and swirling
3: in that you know Mm. especially with the last poem that you
0: read, too, mm. decency, mm. I think the repetition of just, like, man and verb and doing mm. um, a, a thing to a body is, like, I think highly resonant because I think especially, like, I mean, it's, like, highly racialized and gendered, especially of, like, things being done to Asian women. Um, like, I think it really does, that repetition really does emphasize, like, the theme done to... But I also think there's like, something really powerful about you then describing the action and then sort of repeating the same action over and over again as a reminder of this is the violation, but this is you also speaking
3: to it. Mm-hmm. And the want, uh-huh. such an important word there, you know. like the, It feels like someone's grabbing at you mm-hmm. um, with that repetition.
4: So if there is something we want to write about, do we immediately start writing about it or do we think, like process it first, right?
3: I do both of those things, just like at different times. I don't know what I don't know. I, I think that I um, I take a lot of notes, mm-hmm. like write shit down, and usually I don't know that something is an idea that I want to write about until like I've already thought about it a lot, um, and it's like mm-hmm. kind of been there. So then it's more of a matter of then putting together that, like, draft, I guess. Um,
0: Do you feel like it's different for, because so you have different genres that mm-hmm. you work with. Do you mm-hmm. feel like it's different with poetry and, like, versus non No,
3: I think it, um, I mean, yes, I've learned that there are rules in prose, and so that, you know, <laughs> yeah. it kind of constrains mm-hmm. me a little yeah. bit. But, <laughs> so, <laughs> but I, no, I think that it's still a matter of, like, writing down all ideas and then seeing which ones kind of keep coming up and then there's like all this kind of self-excavation that happens where you're like why am I thinking about this what do I what do I associate with it um and I feel like that is the part where the you know the work is spurred because when I'm writing I'm always trying to like answer a question um yeah and I can say that across genres actually Definitely with poems and and essays, it's like, I have a question. I want to find out what I really think about this and, you know, wait for the writing to tell me. What do you guys do? I don't
0: know. I I think, like, my process has been really different after the first book. Mm -hmm. I think, like, recently, after the first book, I think I started thinking about, like, what does it mean to, like, write about traumatic events, especially just, like, who's receiving it, and I know that, like, I've written really like explicit accounts of sexual violence, and then I've like read it, and I've immediately regretted it afterwards, mm-hmm. just because I just feel like the while the story is or the narrative is really true to an experience, and I think it is very necessary. I think there's something about the ways in which it, um, perhaps like for those like if if this if the narrative is to speak to other survivors, right? I think that it. it sometimes like ends up being more triggering than it is mm-hmm. helpful so I think that's something that I've recently started to think about is like what is the impact of the work and if my impulse is more like for me like to resolve something or if it's more towards mm-hmm. a reparative gesture and I think I'm more leaning towards the latter mm-hmm. these days I think just because I want to exercise a little bit more care in the work that I do mm-hmm. and just be a little bit more aware of like what's already being set up there mm-hmm. right? we're already in a very it's really hard to step out of the house now and not be really triggered by something, by the news, and especially if you are a part of communities that are particularly impacted by mm-hmm. current events these days. Um, it's really hard, so I think that, I think now for
3: the writing that we do, we have to practice a certain,
0: like, mm-hmm. a certain
3: attitude of care. I also think that's like a post first book freedom, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay I got I published this thing, and yeah. I feel like, I don't know, at least for me, I was like, no one can tell me what to do. <laughs> like, this is my first thing I wrote down, you know? And then, then because also you think that no one's going to read it. You know, it's like you don't have this idea, that you don't have the same idea of audience. Um, maybe so you're then older it, than I am. Maybe, what? Maybe you're just braver than I <laughs> am. No. Um, I just am uncomfortable all the time. <laughs> But I do think it's, like, that, like, it is, it's responsible of you to change your thinking toward, okay, but how are other people reading this? And, like, what is it offering, um, both to myself and, you know, the reader and, you know, assessing that harm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you feel this, like, how do you feel after Feel that freeing impulse, or me? Oh, oh, I was like Morgan. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're like tenth.
4: This is kind of also an answer <coughs> to the previous question too. I, I think I'm the type of person who writes down. Everything that I become obsessed with and then like Morgan was saying I kind of figure out how I was feeling about that And then you know no one has to see it. So um, it just helps me helps me process things sometimes, but um, After having written this book I'm not sure if I have written this book if I have to start it like now with the consciousness that I have now right and especially the history of the comfort women I think I could start writing these poems because I was younger, like I mean not like you know, I wasn't like twelve, but (laughs) I'm younger than you are (laughs) right. I was like fueling myself with all this rage that I had about Mm -hmm. um all the ignorance and just everything that didn't happen and did happen with their history. So I think I use anger to kind of propel me forward, right?
3: That's what it is. It's like angst, you know. Like that you exercise that. Right.
4: And like the kind of sensitivity that I feel about this history and this issue is like a lot different. Um, I, you know, every minute I realize there are things I don't know about, yeah. and I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't touch it because I feel like I don't have mm. the authority or the the intellect to talk about this. And I think I have become a lot more wary, and if I put it in a good way, like more careful, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just, I don't know. I I don't know. Like I, I'm really scared about this book being out in the world still and Yeah, that I don't have anything to offer. Yeah.
3: <laughs> that continues. Like yeah. that doesn't change yeah. ever.
4: I'm glad I wrote it in the publishing And I was like, Oh well whatever. <laughs> yeah. like, Yes, I love this poem like, you know And no, then, then like, it oh. it remains. That's yeah. the thing. You <laughs> now <think> about it. <laughs> Now the readers are not just my friends. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's kinda scary. But good. Yeah. I should be scared. I should be uncomfortable right, about these issues.
3: But that's the bravery part, Mm. where you're just like, I need to say this. Mm. Um, And I know that I feel good about what I've written. Who knows what the world feels? But yeah, there is that urgency. Yeah,
4: mm-hmm. I like what the poet Chen Chen said on Twitter. <laughs> Chen, <laughs> Chen. <laughs> dropping <laughs> gems <laughs> on know, accident. Like. <laughs> um, follow Chen Chen writes uh, um, on Twitter, <laughs> Um he wrote, my poems are braver than I am, mm-hmm. and I'm always trying mm-hmm. to catch up. That's yeah. a pinned tweet, so you'll <laughs> see it. <but> yeah. <laughs> and it really spoke to me because I, I think that too, mm-hmm. you know, and I link that to what the poet Jericho Brown said earlier in a workshop, and he said when he's writing poems, he tries to be, like, his ultra self and mm-hmm. think, oh, what, what would this ultra Jericho write after this line? Like, you kind of have to transcend yourself and like, kind of let yeah. go of these, like, fears. Like, wh- oh, like, what is this person going to think, you know?
3: Um, yeah, so ego gets sucked out. And then when <laughs> the book comes out, you're like, oh, shit, my ego's <laughs> back. I'm like, this is scary. Yeah, but, yeah, it is yeah. a transcendental... No. <laughs> like those comfort women were yeah, with you, yeah, helping yeah. you write that. Um what
2: what that
4: bronze girl? Do
2: you guys know about that um statue diaspora statue bronze girl? Bronze girl? Yeah. I was reading about this statue of Korean's adaptation to the
4: comfort women. Oh yeah, the comfort women statue. Yeah. The idea. Yeah. I think you're, you're talking about the comfort women's statues, right, of they the, yeah. call it bronze girl. Yeah.
2: Um, and from what I understand, the bronze girl is in diaspora all over the globe. And, and multiple pilgrimages are made to this statue to give her scholars and mm. coats and <laughs> Yeah.
4: Yeah, I, 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 I. think monuments are so important because, like, you know, you think people should have the responsibility to learn about history, like world history, right? <laughs> Lol. But, <laughs> but you like, would think, <laughs> right? Yeah, but it's you can't force every single person to go to the library and like check out books. Um, about pay things in right yeah basic school yeah <laughs> so i think these visual markers are really helpful not just for the comfort women's history but just for you know other communities other other histories as well and i just know there has been a lot of pushback on like mm-hmm. um putting these statues in the united states for example from like right wing um like people from japan and mm-hmm. so Yeah, and I think it's important that they are in other parts of the world as well and represent comfort women who are also, like, not Korean um, because, you know, Filipino women were also um, made to become comfort women. Some Dutch women were also comfort women. So I think it's it's a really useful um, monument to raise awareness and, kind of have people continue asking questions about the significance of it, and think what is women's history, right? When we think about war, um, what were women's lives like during the times of war? Because I think when we think about war, we just really know the masculine perspectives, yeah. like mm-hmm. the battles and the front lines. Dates but and like
3: yeah, boring it's like shit. <laughs> Battle of whatever, okay. Yeah. Right. Where Just are the petals? You know, there's never any people right. in there. Yeah, yeah. Right. So. Also, I have this tattoo of Harriet Dunman. <laughs> and someone asked me if it was a tattoo of me. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? No. This happened like a couple months ago. It was an adult person. <laughs> also, I would, I would have a tattoo of myself.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, to be
2: fair, you have a heart with me on That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I already got that, why
3: would I need this picture of me dressed in Harriet Tubman outfit? F- oh my gosh. <laughs> People really need to learn things. Mm. It's, it's yikes out here. That is like, getting this tattoo has been an education on how no one knows anything. So depressing. <laughs> The it's not me. It's also not Rosa Parks. Someone asked me that. <laughs> it was Rosa Parks. Then I was like, "It's Harriet Tubman." They're like, mm, "Not familiar." <laughs> like they were obviously paying attention that day of Black History Month, where they talked about Frederick Douglass, Rosa Parks, and Harriet Tubman. And I don't know, they just missed it. <laughs> Like, how do you know Rosa Parks and I, I, whatever. (laughs) It's cool. I'm going to tell people it's a tattoo of myself. (laughs) Oh, my God. From that one time I rescued, like, hundreds of thousands of slaves. (laughs) Casually. (laughs) On a weekend.
4: Yeah. Questions? (laughs) Okay. Maybe we can do these two questions and break into signing and more casual mingling talking.
2: Yeah. What,
4: like like, really, like, what was the last word? Did I feel re- relief at no, writing them? Like, like like, oh. It down? Well, I feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> um, I felt uncomfortable reading about them. I felt uncomfortable writing about them. I felt uncomfortable turning their narratives into poems. You know, and I wasn't even sure if I had the ethical right to do it because, like you reiterate, I'm you know it's not my history it's not something i'm ever going to experience but then at the same time i have i came i kept coming back to the question of like who is you know benefiting from me writing these stories right? mm-hmm. and i think that's what every writer should mm-hmm. think when they're writing stories that are not directly mine like where is is this coming from empathy and mm-hmm. um you know again who is this benefiting and um i i really appreciate that i feel uncomfortable writing these stories but i also recognize that you know this is also part of my history yep. as a korean woman and i think it's i really think it is part of everyone's history as people mm-hmm. living in this contemporary world right it's it may not seem totally relevant to you know your life as like maybe an american person living here but it has nothing to do with the Korean War, but the U.S. was very heavily involved in the Korean War, continues to be heavily involved mm-hmm. in the affairs of the Korean Peninsula and everywhere in Asia. Um, so I, you know, think it is part of my history, and I can talk about them, but I need to make sure that um, I think I I pay it forward, if, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Like, I... I Resolve to continue to support organizations that fight for the reparations for the comfort women um, financially, but also just in other means, like through my writing. So that's where I'm at. But I I don't intend to feel totally at home, you know, writing their stories. Like I never want to be in that in that state of mind.
3: But who else will write yeah, it? Yeah. Right. Yeah.
4: Right. Yeah, and I think poetry is such an apt space in which to write about histories that are neg- neglected because a poem is a place that can have many voices. It doesn't even have to have a narrator at all, but then it also can have infinite narrators. So it's like, I think poetry is a really productive site in which to fill in the gaps in our knowledge and, and history. You had a question? Yeah. We'll close with your...
1: Oh, yeah, okay. um, yeah I, am I correct in remembering that you've also done like translation work? Yeah. yeah. So um, I was just wondering, so I, I write poetry and I'm also an interpreter-translator um, and I was just wondering how like the work of translation
2: has made uh, your practice of poetry possible and mm-hmm. how it influences your Yeah,
4: do you two translate at all? Term translation broadly maybe um i I mean I think of translation also as like revision and also yeah. rewriting right, and um mm. i think i I think about translation a lot in my life as well, not just in writing because I am a bilingual person and I didn't speak English until I was like eleven, and everyone made fun of me, <laughs> but I realize there is like poetry between languages, like Mm -hmm. in that process of translation, because there are some things that exist in Korean and in English, but not in, you know, vice versa. Mm -hmm. So I think in that process of translation, I found, you know, some language that would translate really well for my poem writing in English. And I think that I could write these poems in English because I was a Korean speaker first. Mm. Um, I don't think I like, Know, gave up Korean or neglected it I, I really think that writing these poems in English is kind of an act of celebration of my Korean and I believe that my English is this way because it's it's enriched with mm-hmm. Korean I really think so and I think you know like there are some objects or ideas that exist in Korean and in that way it gives me um, more acuteness I think in perceiving things as well um not that like just you know people who speak more languages are. Like, I'm not making a value judgment, right? But I think it works to my benefit, and instead of thinking it thinking of my ESL background as um, a, like a handicap, I really think of it as something that is a blessing. So yeah. So we're we're gonna sign books.